On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a, a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, my friend. I was reminded, you guys, uh, about this passage. If you're familiar with the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a really wonderful passage. And I was also reminded that we could do 20 sermons on this passage and ones like it in the gospel and still not cover everything that's going on here. It's such a magnificent passage. One of the reasons I like the Gospel of Mark here is because it is really clear, it's really concise. And so when Jesus is introducing the Lord's Supper here, I mean, I, I would call this sort of a stripped-down version of it. And so there's a, a lot of great things to learn, but the, the, uh, one of the points that I really want you to see is how intentional Jesus is in giving them this wonderful gift of what I'll call the table of grace. And it works out perfectly. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together because it's such a magnificent gift that the Lord Jesus gives us. So let's just jump in. Look at verse 12 and, and, and on. And here's what I'm going to do. If you want to keep your outline and go through, I'm going to read through the scripture and just explain some things and then apply it. So on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, now this is the Passover, it's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread because part of the Passover is that the Israelites had bread. They didn't put yeast in it because they couldn't wait for it to rise because they were rushing out of Egypt so fast. So it's also referred to as this unleavened bread. Notice he goes on to say it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So what Mark is doing is he's actually explaining to the Gentile world a little bit of the Jewishness 
of Jesus and the whole Passover. So it was customary to slaughter the lamb the, the day before. And so consequently, Jesus' disciples, who are, of course, Jewish, are expecting to celebrate the Passover. So they say to Jesus, where do you want us to go and make preparations for the meal? Now, notice what Jesus does next. He, sends two his, he says to two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, look for a man who's carrying a jar of water, follow him. When he enters a house, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where can, I, where can we prepare the Passover? Now, if you've been with me in this series, you may remember that Jesus did this just a couple of days before when he sent a couple of his disciples ahead to look for the baby donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see this because this is how intentional Jesus is as he's setting up this whole Passover. So remember that now things are coming to a head for him. So the religious authorities are out to murder him. And if you're really not familiar with the Bible, right towards the end of Jesus' life, this, uh, this uh, groundswell of opposition with the major religious authorities in Jerusalem, it really came to a head. And they d- had determined to kill him. And so consequently, as he's wanting to celebrate this Passover, or this, uh, this last Passover with his disciples, he wants to keep things secret. In other words, he doesn't want the address of this meal that this, they're going to have together to get out. He probably also wants to keep it from Judas, who, whom he knows will betray him. And so what he does is he sends two of his disciples to find a man carrying a water jar. Now, you might think, well, there are 200,000 people in Jerusalem at this point. How are they ever going to find a man? Well, men didn't carry water jars. The women carried the water jars. So a man walking around with a water jar would have would have really stood out and they would see him and of course then they would know and they would follow him and talk to the person who owned the house and what you and I need to see with all these details is really the fact that Jesus prearranged all this because he was very intentional in wanting to spend intimate time with his 12 closest followers before he was crucified he was very intentional He knew he was walking in the unfolding plan of God. He knew he was going to be crucified. He needed this time with them to communicate some things to them. And right before he dies, he institutes or he gives them the gift of the Lord's Supper. Men and women, when we celebrate communion here in a few minutes with Scotty, we need to see this table as the wonderful gift it is. It's a blessing that the people of God can gather around a table of grace that God has laid before us. And that's what Jesus is setting up here. Look how intentional he is with this because he's come to do his father's will. And part of his father's will is to really build into these people who will carry on his mission without him. Now, they set up the meal and see what happens here. The teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The owner of the house was probably familiar with Jesus and even knew him and was a supporter, maybe secret, but some sort of supporter. So he would have housed the disciples secretly. He'll show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready, make preparations there. And notice how this passage ends here. The disciples left, went into the city, and I love this, found things just as Jesus had told them. Now there's a point to be made here and that's this. 
When Jesus says something, it's something that we can really put our faith in. In other words, you can really take Jesus at his word. And so these guys, knowing it was a very potentially dangerous situation, go into the city and they find it, find it just like Jesus said. And that's meant to, that was meant to strengthen their faith that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because he led an intentional life. Now, men and women, let's stop for a minute. If you choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that he will call you to do is to be very intentional with your life. If you read the Gospels, you will see how he consistently invested himself in other people for a greater good. If you choose to become a follower of Christ, that's exactly what he'll call you to do. He will call you to invest your life in other people for a greater good. Now, here's the wonder of the gospel. He won't just call you to do it by example, but he'll give you the power to do it by his indwelling spirit. One of the great privileges that we have as the people of God is not to seek advantage towards other people, but rather lay down our lives in sacrificial love for other people. Just like our master. And so Jesus is very intentional in giving this gift of the Lord's Supper for very specific reasons. Now look at verses 16 through 21. They left, they found it just as Jesus had said. And notice, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. They were reclining at the table eating. So they had a wonderful meal together. And who knows how long this meal went. Maybe it went for a couple of hours. And I don't know if you have people over to your house sometimes and you invite them over and you linger around the meal. You don't rush through the meal. They weren't rushing through this meal. They were lingering around the table, really enjoying themselves. They're reclining, and part of the reclining, the table is low. Yes, so they could get to the table, but also because it was a very intimate and relaxing atmosphere. And I would say there was great joy around the table. And then watch what Jesus says next. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now don't let this get lost. Can you imagine being in a very intimate setting with other people that you love deeply and have walked with for three years, seen the amazing things that you've seen, experienced things that you've never seen before, and then suddenly in the midst of a very intimate meal together, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And I have to believe he paused at that point. It's a little bit like pulling a pin of a grenade, sticking it out and dropping it right in the middle of the table. I mean, it is just shocking. Now, let's talk about betrayal for just a minute. The literal definition of betrayal here means to hand over personally. Betrayal is an intimate wound by definition because it's done by someone that you expect to be loyal. And if you've ever been betrayed, if somebody's made a promise to you and broken it, if you've ever been betrayed in a friendship or in other, uh, another even more intimate relationship, perhaps you've been betrayed in a business deal, it's so painful 
because you expect the opposite. I have to say, because of my own uh, family of origin issues, one of the things that I value most in relationship is loyalty. Now, I value loyalty because I value honesty, and honesty and loyalty go together because you cannot be honest with someone if they will not be loyal to you. And if, you're not, if they're not loyal to you, you'll never be honest with them. Betrayal is so devastating because the expectation is exactly opposite. In, in fact, one person put it like this. Listen to this. Sometimes the person you take a bullet for is behind the trigger. That's the definition of betrayal. Now, some in the room have been betrayed, and you know how that feels. And some of us in the room have betrayed people. And perhaps you've seen the consequence of that betrayal. It's so devastating because it's so emotionally charged because in the relationship that you thought would offer mutual safety, there's the devastation of dishonesty. And so look at the response of the men. One by one, they, say to him, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Now, this is not a response, you guys. This is not a response of, I'm not the one. This is much more, if you look at the original, it's much more of, surely you don't mean me. And underneath, there's a deep sense of self-doubt and even anxiety of, could it be me? Maybe it's not beyond me. And so there's a real sense of self-doubt in this response. It's not a firm confidence that it's not me. Notice what he goes on to say. It's one of the 12, one who dips the bread in the bowl with me. Now, all these men are dipping the bread in the bowl with him. They're all eating with him. So what he's simply saying is, the one that betrays me, the one who's going to betray me is in a deep, intimate relationship with me. And that's why it's going to be so devastating. It's so hurtful. Because to the degree you have intimacy with someone, that's the degree that the betrayal will be so devastating. That's why relational betrayal is so hurtful. Because it's not supposed to be like that. Each of these men is really questioning himself to the very core. Now watch what Jesus says in verse 21. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Now it's very interesting. In other words, this betrayal is part of the unfolding plan of God. In other words, God doesn't cause the betrayal, but he stands behind the betrayal to actually bring a greater good. God doesn't cause the betrayal, but he stands behind the betrayal in a sovereign way and brings about a greater good. 
In a very real way, Judas' betrayal of Jesus led to the cross. Judas' sin of betrayal led to Jesus' crucifixion and to his capture and crucifixion. But do you know what? In the incredible plan of God, what led to the cross was the love of Jesus for us. He went to the cross because Judas betrayed him. He went to the cross because he loves people. He acknowledges here that God is ultimately behind it and he's willing to walk in the unfolding plan of God. You guys listen. Every person in this room at some point in your life and mine will walk a road that's really, really hard to understand. And it will be at that point that your relationship with the Lord Jesus will sustain you. It won't be understanding the circumstances. It will be drawing near to the person of Christ. That's why it's so important for each one of us to cultivate an intimate relationship with Christ because circumstances that you and I don't understand are, gonna, are bound to come. They will come. They will come. And if your faith is circumstantial, it won't survive. But if our faith is in the person that we know and we know cares for us, he will see you through. He will see you through. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He goes on to say this, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What's he saying there? He's simply saying this, that Judas is fully and finally responsible for his choice to betray the Son of God. We are fully and finally responsible for our sin. And notice how he says this. It would be better for Judas to not been born, to never to have existed. What does he mean there? He's simply saying this. Judas is turning his back on the Lord Jesus, and he's saying it would be better for Judas never to have existed than to turn his back on the Lord Jesus and exist forever apart from the love of God. No existence is better than existence forever without Jesus. These are sobering statements at a very important time because betrayal is so devastating. Now, let's move on. How can Jesus find such courage to keep moving? Well, he had supreme confidence that this was the unfolding plan of God, and that's why he was so courageous. And so, as his followers, as we're called to follow him, men and women in uncertain days, so he can give us courage to continue to follow him. 
part of coming to the table of grace and mercy is not only remembering, as we'll talk in a few moments, about what Jesus has done for us, but also to experience his grace this morning to continue to press on to take hold of that for which he has already taken hold of us. This table was meant to instill courage in you To fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. No matter where you are in the journey, this is a table of encouragement to instill courage. Now, look at verses 22 through 26. We'll talk through this table of grace. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now, this is called the institution of the Lord's Supper, Mark style. This is definitely a stripped-down version, if you would. Now, Judas has left. He's gone. We know that from the Gospel of John. The 11 there are left, and they're in their self-doubt. So while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave some to the disciples, and he said, this is my body. Now, men and women, Jesus, for a very particular reason, chose the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, to come into Jerusalem. He didn't just wander into Jerusalem any old time. No, he came in at the major feast for the Israelites, the feast of Passover, where the Lamb of God was slain and the people of God feasted on that Lamb, knowing that as they feasted on the Lamb, they would be protected from death and God would deliver them from the land of slavery. It was a reminder of God's great salvation for them. Why did Jesus come in on the Passover? Because men and women, he aimed to replace the Passover by fulfilling the Passover. That's why he came to Jerusalem. Because he came to serve a brand new meal that would make the Passover obsolete because he would fulfill all that the Passover anticipated. Here's how it worked. He said, take this, this is my body. Now, when he raised the bread, the 12 had seen Jesus do amazing things with bread. He'd fed 5,000. With a couple of loaves of bread, he fed 4,000 with another little bit of bread. He talked about the fact that God provided manna or bread from heaven for his people. And then finally, in a great pinnacle conversation with his, with his disciples, he said, I am the bread of life. And in that statement, men and women, he was making a, a statement to say, I am the very sustenance of who you are. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one who gives you life. And so when he says here, this is my body, he's saying that I am the one who can satisfy you at the core of your being, and I'm the only one who can do it. Now, why is this so important? We are in a culture, men and women, where there's so many offers of satisfaction There's so many enticing things, things that you may say are good, some things that maybe are not so good, but there's so many options to to satisfy our thirst and to meet us in our deepest hunger. And men and women, 
if we go to the wrong things, they'll ultimately destroy us. And what Jesus is saying here in offering his body is he's saying, I'm your bread of life. Now, I want to stop just a minute. Those of you in the room who are not Christians, Jesus is saying something really radical here. Here's what he's saying to you. Listen to me. He is saying this. He's saying, I am who you are looking for. And if you don't come to me, you will never find what you're searching for. Now, that's either arrogant or incredible. Take your pick. But that's what he says. When he says, take this, this is my body. He's saying, if you come to me by faith, if you find me your feast, I will save you, I will sustain you, and I will see you safely home. From beginning to end. He goes on to say, he took the cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. They drank it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What's he saying here? He's simply saying this. The cup represents his blood. And what does his blood represent? But the fact that he will give his life. He will spill his blood on the cross that people who believe in him will actually participate in his death. And in his death, they will experience the forgiveness of their sins because his death on the cross will satisfy the wrath of God. His blood spilled will satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of anyone who places their faith in him. He dies, his blood, he dies on the cross in the place of anyone in this room who will place their faith in him. He stands in your place as a substitute, sacrificing himself to satisfy the wrath of God and through faith in him, offering you forgiveness for all of our sins. This is a table of grace. Men and women, you can come freely to the table of grace by faith in the Lord Jesus. But let me tell you, you are invited freely, but it is not free. He offers you life because he lost his life. It was not free to him, so it could be free to you. Do you see how wonderful the invitation is? Do you see that? And it, men and women, blood of the covenant, it's a unilateral promise. He says, just come to the table of grace. And I'll save you. Come to me. Rest in me. That's all it means. Feast on me. He's the host. He's the meal. He's all of it. So what, what do we bring to the meal? What, how, what do we bring to the meal? You guys uh, my wife and I, when we get invited over to places, I understand we're supposed to bring a hostess gift. Is that the proper thing to do? To bring a hostess gift. You bring something when you're invited to someone else's table. When we invite people over, people bring 
hostess gifts to our house. We have 43 bottles of red wine. Somebody told me after first service when I said that I needed to start re-gifting. So invite me over and tell me what kind of wine you want. (laughs) Guess what? Judas got up and left this table of grace. Follow me here for just a minute. He got up and left this table. The betrayer. You know who he left behind? He left behind one guy who would deny Jesus. He left behind ten other guys who would desert him. Judas never came back to the table of grace. Peter wept. The other men gathered in the upper room after the crucifixion in fear and hope. And Jesus came for them. And they sat again at the table of grace. What did they bring to the table? Their need for Jesus. That's all. The only thing you need to bring to this table is your need for Jesus and your willingness to receive him by faith. I love this. They sang a hymn. Why do you think they sang? You know why they sang? Because when you begin to understand this wonderful table, all you can do is break out in worship. There's nothing left to do. You don't have to do anything. It's all been done. We're just going to dance. We're just going to worship. And then they left. And you know what they left with? They came empty. They left full of grace and mercy to offer a lost and weary world. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for a wonderful morning. Now as we celebrate communion together, I pray it would be with great joy in Jesus' name. Amen.